0: Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, the water flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word. As I am your servant, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and touch your people's hearts and minds today with the truth and power of your gospel, of your good news, even through this challenging passage. Bless not only the reading, but the preaching of your word, I ask now in Jesus' name, amen. It is a sobering thought to consider that the Israelites who were standing there at the at the, at, at the side of the Jordan River, were once standing in almost the same place more than 40 years prior to that. Early on, after they went to Mount Sinai, God told them to go. And if you remember the story, Israel sent out 12 spies to give a report of the land, to, to map it out and, and give them some strategy as they came back. Ten of, the str- of these spies out of the 12 said that we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They were massive. They were huge. There's no way in the world we're going to defeat them. We'd be better off if we turned back and went back to Egypt, back to our yoke of slavery, basically. Only two of the spies said, no, we can go in and we can conquer. And that was Joshua and Caleb. Caleb. But because these spies gave a bad report and discouraged the people from wanting to go in and fight, God brought them into the wilderness. And that's where they were at for 40 years. God brought them there to teach the next generation to learn to trust Him and not be afraid to accomplish His will. If you look in your Bibles at Numbers, chapter 14, verses 26 through 35, it reveals that the first generation of those who were around 20 years old and older, who lacked faith in God and grumbled against him, would die in the wilderness. They would never enter into the promised land. It would be their children. Again, this is a sobering warning as to us as we consider the question, Whom do we fear? Do we fear governments or God? I think it should be that we fear a government who fears the living God. It's the way it should work. That's what our founding fathers uh, considered. That's what they saw as good, that we fear a government who fears the living God. Um, When you look at the divine providence... That was the thinking of our founders. They didn't always come out and just say God. They often called him, uh, they looked at him in the sense of his process, how God protects and preserves in the sense of providence. And so they considered the divine providence as the reason this nation was even able to come into existence, like facing Egypt, which was a far more superior power militarily. England, the British Empire, was the most powerful military on the face of the earth at that time. There is no possible way that the colonists in this country should have won, and they recognized that the only reason we won was because God was with us. George Washington, after the Revolutionary War was won, uh, and at the beginning of his presidency in, in 1789, Washington wrote these words to pastor and college president, of Harvard's Samuel Langdon. He wrote, The man must be bad indeed who can look upon the events of the American Revolution without feeling the warmest gratitude towards the great author of the universe whose divine interposition, in other words, God placing himself between them and the British, his divine interposition uh, was so frequently manifested on our behalf. And it is my earnest prayer that we may so conduct ourselves as to merit a continuance of those blessings with which we have hitherto been favored. You're hearing George Washington recognizing God's hand in the fight that gave the colonists the victory over superior foes. It is then Washington's prayer that we would conduct ourselves in such a way as to merit a continuance of God's blessing. Well, how would you do that? By being faithful to God. By being faithful to his word, to his law. That's how we continue God's blessing upon us. Because God's grace is sufficient. In in that sense, it is God who gives us undeserved favor through Christ Jesus, but he gives it to us as we trust in him. As we put our faith in him. You remember Genesis 15.1. Where Abraham believed God. He trusted in God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. In other words. I will righteously work in your favor. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. I will be with you Abraham. I will be your sword and your shield. So. This is what is going on here also in Joshua 3, where it is God who goes before his people into the Jordan River. And then the question, will God's people trust him and follow him into battle? Will God's people trust him and follow him into battle? Joshua 3 verse 15 tells us that the Jordan River was at flood stage. You might think, well, so what? What does that mean? Well, at normal flow rates, the Jordan River was The banks were about 90 to 100 feet wide, and the depth of the river was around 3 to 10 feet deep. So it was manageable. You could pass through it, although you would have to really work to do so. At flood stage, it was over 12 feet deep and over a mile wide. There's no way you're going to get through there without drowning, is the point. And so they were cut off. There's no way to get through unless someone delivers them, unless someone makes a way for them. And you can imagine the priests who are carrying the ark, and the ark represents God's presence amongst his people. The priests are carrying the ark. Imagine if you were the f- on the front line of that ark. You were the first two priests to go into that water. And you go out there, and you, you take your first step, and you expect God to drive back the water. But he doesn't. He tests your faith a little bit. So the water is up around your ankles. And if you've ever had fast-moving water... Uh, mountain stream water flowing around you, you feel it move the sand and the gravel around you, and you feel some of the power of it. And then so they they take that first step, and then they take the next step, and it's up to their knees. And they're trying to gingerly make sure they have a good footing because they don't want to drop the ark, of course, into the river. And so as they take that next step, it's now up to their knees, and they're feeling the power of this swift, swift current flowing around them. And they're thinking, okay, something's going to have to happen because we can't go any further. If this is the way it is, they take the next step and it's up to their waist. They're now leaning because they don't want to get washed away as the power of the river is trying to sweep them away. And they're looking over to Joshua going, (laughs) Joshua says, a little bit deeper. Keep stepping into the water, a little bit deeper. And so they're thinking, okay, and they take the next step expecting the water to come up to their chest, and yet it recedes down to where their knees are. And they take the next step after that, and it goes down to where their ankles are. They take the next step after that, and the next step after that, and the next thing you know, they're in the middle of the river where the water level should be six to seven feet above their heads. Well, it is, but it's bunched up like a heap of stones. That's why they take the 12 stones and make a marker remembering that God pushed back the waters of the Jordan just like he did the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk on dry ground from one side of the Jordan River to the other into Jericho. And when you look at uh, the importance of this exercise, you think, why did God make them do that? Well, so that they would learn to trust him that they would know that his power is with them, that God has chosen Joshua as their leader to replace Moses. God is with Joshua and God is with his people and he will bring them the victory if they continue to step forward in faith, trusting in him. That is true for us as well. Stepping out in faith is always a challenge. But as you do and God provides for you, you learn to trust in Jesus. You learn to trust in God. Trust is, is something that you learn. You don't, we don't have it naturally. We are very protective. When, when you think about someone who's been born in an orphanage, they are very self-protective. And the reason for that is they haven't been able to learn to trust people. And, and if they do trust someone, it is, that, it is only that person and no one else because they want to be careful and cautious and self-preserving. So trust is something that you learn. And each step you take in faith into the unknown, trusting in Jesus, trusting in God, God, and God provides for you, you learn that God is with you and he will provide for you. He will take care of you and he will see you through. So what is our response as we learn to trust in God? We heard the call from, this, from the quartet this morning, singing, It is time we the people stand up for what is right. It is time we squared our shoulders back, raised our swords to fight, for the Bible is our weapon and the Spirit is our shield. The church needs more of its members to be workers in the field. How many people crossed that Jordan River that day? 10%, 40%, or 100%? Everybody crossed that river that day. Everybody was stepping out in faith that day. We need all of the church, all God's people, to step out in faith and not be afraid to accomplish his will. To stand up is to take your position on the battlefield. Using the Bible as your weapon is to contend with the world for what is right using God's word. Knowing that God's spirit protects and preserves you uh, why would you fear anything that man can do, do to you knowing what God has already done for you through his, his son and your savior, Jesus Christ? The enemy can seem gigantic and intimidating, I know this, if they are all that you're looking at. If that's all you see, is the enemy and nothing else. It's kind of like if, if the media focuses your your attention on, on the problems of the day and all you see is the problems of the day, you wonder, where is God? Where is he at? Look at all that's happening. Well, like I said, the foe, the enemy, can be intimidating if that's where your focus lies. But when you look beyond at the one who created them and you, at the one who is the creator of all things and know that he has everything in his hand, Why would you be fearful? Why would you shrink back? As the quartet sang in the second verse, there is victory for the Christian who walks the narrow way. There has been a prize appointed to the soul that does not stray. Oh, I want to live for Jesus. Be all that I should be so that I can rest with him forever. Live eternally. Keep your focus on Christ Jesus. A verse from another song I know that you know. Uh, It uh, comes to mind helping us to remember that it is by grace, God's grace that we are saved and that we are preserved. This verse goes like this. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. That is a reference to the Jordan. Jordan. Those rivers that are heaped up, I'm not going to let them overflow and take you out. I'm going to keep them backed up. I'm going to preserve your life. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you. Your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. That last verse is so profound to me. What it's saying when to sanctify to you your deepest distress means that God works all things together for your good. Everything. Even your sorrow. Even your greatest distress. He can work towards your good. Instead of becoming weaker, as you rely upon the Lord, He makes you stronger. Strengthening your faith, your discernment, your soul, your resolve, and your power to love, even as He loves. That's what God does for you when you keep your eyes on Him. Consider these words now of Second Peter 1: three through10. If you have your Bibles open, you can kind of follow along there. I want to start with verses three through four. The Apostle Peter writes, His, God's divine power has given us everything we need. We see this in the Old Testament carrying all the way through the New, even to the very end. His divine power has given us everything we need for for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Corruption is caused by evil desires. That's why the last commandment in the, in the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt not what? I can't hear anybody. I still can't barely hear you. Thou shalt not what? Covet. Seems like such an innocuous thing. Covetousness. But that's the source of evil desire. Wanting that which is not yours. Wanting that which shall not be yours. And not respecting what other people have. And what they've been given. That is the source of sin when Eve reached out her hand to partake in that forbidden fruit that is the source of sin, and Adam sharing with his wife that forbidden fruit and the continuation of this throughout human history just continues on and on and on. So when we look here, the first point to note is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through Christ Jesus. Participating in the divine nature means that you have received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ Jesus, and you are his child, and there is nothing that can snatch you away from him. There is no power in earth or in heaven that can take you away from him. In verse 4, it is important to see that you are able or unable to escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires only through God's power. God is your deliverer. These illustrations, these images in the Old Testament of God parting the waters of the Red Sea so that his people can walk through on dry ground. And then closing up that that gap as the Egyptians tried to pursue. God's people are preserved. Those who are not God's people are not preserved. They fall under the wrath and judgment of God and are destroyed. They are consumed. When we we look at the Jordan River, we see Israel at an impasse and that God opens up the waters and creates a path where there was no path before. Brothers and sisters, this is the imagery of Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't fear evil. I don't fear judgment. I don't fear the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus is with me. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus talks about a baptism that he has to undergo. And, it, and when you connect the dots with this, you realize that the reason you can walk through on dry land, the reason you can walk through that path and not be over, overcome by God's wrath and judgment is because Jesus took it upon himself in your place on the cross. He said, I have a baptism to undergo in Luke 2 and how, how sorrowful I feel until it comes to pass. And he's talking about not not the Romans driving nails through his hands and feet, putting that crown of thorns on his head. He's not talking about the Romans ripping open his back through through uh, through lashings. He's not talking about all the stuff that's going on there. He's talking about when he's actually on the cross as one who is cursed for our sake. And because of that cursing, because of his cursing, He takes upon himself not just the wrath of man, which is minuscule compared to the wrath of God. He takes that upon himself so that we might know his blessing. And his blessing is that we walk free on dry ground where we could easily be consumed by the waters that are around us. The judgment of God. It is God who delivers us. That is the one thing, too, that we cannot escape. It is God who delivers us. He is the one who enables us to cross over from one to the other, even from death to life. Did you know, I know you know that Hebrew names have specific meanings attached to them, but what about the word Hebrew itself? Do you know what it means? It means to cross over or to pass over or to pass through. That's what Hebrew means. All the Hebrews as they crossed through or passed through on dry ground did so because of God's power to deliver them. And that's why the nations around them were fearful of them. They weren't so much fearful that they defeated other kings. They were fearful because God is the one who fights for them. God is the one who provides for them. When Rahab, and you know that when they crossed the Jordan River, the first uh, place that they went to was Jericho. And Jericho was a city with immense walls, had not fallen in a thousand years plus. It, it was an impenetrable city. And yet when the two Israel spies went in there and they came to Rahab's house, and they, they were talking to her, she said to them, you, we have... We have fear of you because of what God has done for you. It has melted our hearts. We have no resolve to stand against you because we know that your God fights with you because we have heard about how he has dried up the Red Sea and in drying up the Red Sea allowed you to pass through and then covered up the Egyptians as they came after you. And you know what she's saying? She's saying you were facing a far greater foe, a far greater power, You should have been conquered. You should have been destroyed. Your backs were against the water. It was an open plain. There was nowhere to go. Egypt and all their military might was marching in on top of you and you should have been utterly destroyed, but God preserved you. He provided for you and He opened the way for you to pass through on the other side. And when they came after you, He closed the door. As we're working through Revelation, that is what Revelation is all about. We do undergo persecution as Christians. We do go through times of suffering and difficulty, but through Jesus Christ, there is an open door to pass from this life into the next, to pass from the sorrow and suffering of this world into the joy and and blessing of the kingdom of heaven where we will live for him forever, with him forever, through eternity. So Peter continues. He says, for this reason, in verse 5, make every effort. This is on you and me now. Make every effort to add to your faith. This is about faith. Add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. This is how your faith is strengthened, and your assurance of salvation grows as a follower of Christ Jesus. You are adding these things to your faith, and I want you to see that these are all actions. This is no, there's nothing here that's passive. This is all active. Goodness is pursuing and putting into practice in your life the goodness of God. Adding knowledge is growing in goodness by seeking the knowledge of God. What do I mean by this? Well, consider this picture. George Washington Carver was a slave who was emancipated, who was given his freedom after the Civil War. And even though he was formerly a slave, he became a budding scientist. And... As a scientist, he taught southern farmers who had depleted their soil through the planting of cotton uh, over and over again to plant peanuts instead to replenish the soil with nitrogen. Well, peanuts are not the cash crop that cotton is, so how many uses can you find for lowly peanuts? George Washington Carver writes, All my life I have risen regularly at 4 o'clock and have gone into the woods and talked with God. There he gives me my orders for the day. I gather specimens and listen to what God has to say to me. After my morning's talk with God, I go into my laboratory and begin to carry out his wishes for the day. Carver came up with more than 300 uses for the peanut. More than 300 uses for the peanut. And he was invited to speak to the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee in 1921. Following the speech, the chairman asked Dr. Carver, How did you learn all these things? From an old book, Carver replied. Well, what book? Carver replied, the Bible. Perplexed, the chairman asked, Does the Bible tell you about peanuts? No, sir, but it tells about the God who made the peanut. I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he said, and he did, Carver explained. He showed me. George Washington Carver sought to do good to those who had once enslaved him. He sought to show them God's goodness. And in showing them God's goodness, trusting in God each and every day, he sought also God's knowledge. And God gave him knowledge. And because God gave him knowledge and he used it for for good, God blessed him. And through him, God blessed the farmer's the South. I, th- I find that fascinating that one should be merciful. One who was enslaved turns around and understands the mercy and grace of God and demonstrates that same mercy and grace to those who had once held him as a slave and how God blessed that. All these things Add to your knowledge, your goodness, knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, etc. These are all qualities of God. And as you apply them to your life, God will use them to increase your faith and assurance that you are his. Verse 8 and 9 says, For if you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is again because these qualities are the power of God at work in you. Verse 9: But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. That is what makes us ineffective, is when our focus goes away from God and onto our troubles and onto our difficulties because we're not trusting in God's power, his provision, to see us through. He says, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail. Well, God calls us. He is the one who elects us. What is Peter saying here? The key word in Greek is bebeos. It means to make sure, to confirm, to establish Assurance of God's call comes through the evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives as it produces good works. We don't produce good works on our own. We produce the works of God as God's Spirit is at work in us and we are being faithful to what he is seeking to do through our, in and through our lives. There's an old saying, you will know, never know if something works until you put it to work. You will never know if something works until you put it to work. We grow in our assurance of our election, that we belong to God, and salvation, that we are saved by his grace as we see spiritual fruit produced in our lives. The fruit reveals God's spirit at work in us, and we grow in our assurance when we step out into the waters and wade out a little bit deeper into the unknown, knowing that it is God who goes with us and God who goes before us, and God who will preserve us all the way through. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless through the grace of Christ. Even at the coming of our Lord Jesus, you know that the one who calls you is faithful, and he will accomplish it. We just need to trust in him. Amen.